I'm Evan Smith of the Texas Tribune, and this is Point of Order, the podcast about the ins and outs, the ups and downs, the people in politics and traditions of the 87th Texas legislature. Yep, it's that time again. We're back, though who we is and what back means are open questions in the middle of a pandemic. There are so many unknowns as lawmakers prepare to gather from the issues that top the agenda to the process of debating and passing legislation. But one thing is certain, the identity of the next presiding officer of the House. Are you feeling it, people? As I speak these words, he's still presumptive, but by the time many of you hear this, Matthew McDade Phelan, commonly known as Dade, a Beaumont Republican beginning his fourth term in office, will be the 77th speaker in Texas history. In October of 2019, you'll remember the current occupant of the job, Dennis Bonin, announced he'd step down at the end of the 86th after making indiscreet comments about his colleagues to a conservative activist who secretly recorded him. That created an opening at the top of the lower chamber's org chart. And when the GOP held its majority in the November elections, 45-year-old Phelan, the chair of the all-important state affairs committee, pounced. He quickly secured the votes of enough members in both parties to bring the second open speaker's race in two cycles to a bloodless close. Now comes the hard part. Coronavirus caseloads and hospitalizations are at record highs across the state. The number of Texans without insurance coverage has spiked along with the unemployment rate. The vaccine rollout is slow and spotty. Small businesses are shuttered everywhere, and those that remain open, even the most fortunate restaurants and bars, are hanging on for dear life. Public and higher education are struggling to meet their basic responsibilities, with learning loss, particularly in communities of color, soaring, and a lack of broadband access is making all of the above worse. Dade Phelan and company have this bill of particulars awaiting them in Austin along with the two boxes they're constitutionally obligated to check. Pass a budget in balance, no small feat when there is less money to spend in the next two-year cycle than there was in the last, and redraw legislative and congressional district maps. No small feat when the data necessary to inform that decennial exercise is late in coming from the feds. Plus, you know, the insurrection. The politics at the start of a new session were always going to be challenging. But with the country divided, the parties divided, and his party divided, the new speaker is well aware that this is no ordinary time. As he told me when we talked on Monday, January 11th, the day before day one of the 140. Point of Order is supported by Lone Star College, the presenting sponsor of all Texas Tribune events during the 2021 session, and by DoorDash, the Texas Association of School Business Officials, Water Grows, the Texas Federation of Drugstores, the Beer Alliance of Texas, Texas 2036, Raise Your Hand Texas, the Texas Association of Community Colleges, Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas, Kamek and Strong PC, and NRG Energy. So I thought we'd start with the news of the day, Mr. Chairman, the revenue estimate. Two hours ago, Controller Hager told us how much money would be available to spend in the next two-year budget cycle. 
less than was available in the last two-year cycle, but more than we were expecting. The sky is not falling, apparently. What's your reaction to that, and what are the consequences of that? I think it's about where we thought we would be over the last few months. We kind of landed where we thought the estimate may be for the current biennium and then, of course, for 22-23. I will say that we have a challenge ahead of us. There's no yep. doubt about it. We have a challenging budget cycle. We have a thousand people moving to Texas every day. And I use this line all the time. People probably get sick of hearing it, but they're not bringing asphalt when they move here. And they're yep. not bringing public school teachers when they come here. They're not bringing DPS officers and prison guards when they come here. So we have to provide that. That's, that's the, the core essential services of the state of Texas or are those items. And um, we have less to work with. That's unfortunate. Right. But the state of Texas is still the best place to do business. Sure. It still, it's still, uh, to me, the strongest economy in the entire country. So we will emerge from this COVID-19 fog, if you want to call it that, better than any state, quicker than any state. Yeah. We're just going to have to get to work sooner rather than later. And I, my colleagues are ready to do that. I've had multiple conversations with them. They're ready right. to get to work. And the budget is, budget, as always, will rule the day. Are there any areas of the budget, uh, Chairman, that you consider to be off the table for cuts? We have to look at everything. I mean, that's that's. I've been on appropriations. I was on appropriations for two sessions, and there's yep. no there's no article that you don't go through with a fine tooth comb. That's your job, right? Same with Senate finance. You always have to take a fresh look at each uh, each budget as you go through that process. You know, if you look at your budget back home, or your budget at the Tribune, or my budget back home, or my budget in my real estate business, the the item you spend the most money on is what you kind of care about the most. Yep. And if you look in Texas, we've always spent our, our, lar our largest item in our budget each session is, is Article 3, which is public education and higher education. I, I don't see that changing. That is our priority coming through this right. pandemic. Children, we, we, can't, we cannot abandon our children when they need us the most. But you're not saying, Mr. Chairman, that you're not going to cut public ed. You're not saying you're not going to cut higher ed. You said everything's on the table. I said that we've got to go through every every article, every agency, and right. every receipt and look at it holistically, obviously. And we have to balance our budget. And we can only spend as much money as the comptroller says we have to spend. And we can only right. spend as much money as as the economy has grown. So we have to go through all those um, different types of restrictions, which are fine. And we've done it before and we'll do it again. But right. I, I have full faith in the Appropriations Committee that they will do a fantastic job. Are you willing to consider new revenue sources to add to the amount of money you have to spend, Chairman, or is this it? Well, what, what new revenue sources are you speaking to? Well, there are only a couple of new revenue sources that might be available. The three-letter word, tax, might be on the table, probably... Mm -hmm. uh, you know, less popular than some others. But I mean, is there another way for you to find money to add to this group? Or is this pretty much the, what you know, you're going to go to war with the army you've got? I think we go to the war with the army we got. I thought you were going to suggest something else as far as new revenue, uh, as others have in the, uh, over the last uh, several weeks. Are you but referring would... to marijuana uh, or, or, or gambling, <laughs> Mr. Speaker? I, I've heard I've heard this. I've heard those two brought up quite a bit. No, yeah. I, I don't. I, I don't see new taxes and new fees being acceptable to the uh, legislature. Right. Um, so, just since you brought it up, are you open to the idea of gambling uh, and and uh, and the effect that it might have on the economy or marijuana? Since again, you're alluding to the possibility of of some other things that have been discussed. 
Well, it gets brought up in every conversation. And if you want to discuss those two as revenue sources, do it through the prism of a long-term commitment because it will not fix the current budget deficit or the 22-23 right. budget issues we have. It will take years before you see any revenue from either one of those options. So, you know, to think you can plug and play on either one of those is yep. not—it's not factual. It just—it won't work in this in this current budget cycle. So we're clear. This is then the amount of money we have to work with in your mind. This is the budget we're going to write. Correct. Okay. Um, even if the budget is not as bleak and painful as some people predicted, you know this is going to be a tough session, given everything going on in the world. One might reasonably ask, why would anybody want to be speaker? So I'm going to ask you, why did you want to be speaker? You know the kind of conditions you were going to get into. Why did you want the job? <laughs> that's, a, that's a great question. I ask myself that uh, every morning since this, uh, since this occurred. Honestly, yeah. Evan, I didn't want to be speaker. I, I, I did not want to do it. And throughout the, sh you know, the COVID shutdown, so to speak, and I guess members had time on their hands and throughout the summer, really beginning in May, I started getting phone calls from my colleagues asking me to consider it. Right. And, and you know, one phone call is one thing, but you know, after a few here and a few there, and it starts to really span the spectrum of the Republican caucus I started thinking, well, you know, maybe maybe I should consider doing this. Maybe this is what's best for the, for the Texas House. And as we got closer to the election, I felt very certain that the Republicans would keep the majority. I actually went on a Texas Trip Fest, um, a show with uh, Celia Israel, and we discussed it. And I gave a pretty good argument why the Republicans would keep the Texas House. And if you go yeah. back and listen to it, it was pretty dead on. Uh, I was seeing different poll numbers, and I thought we would keep the Texas House. So I started taking it more serious as we got closer and closer in November. And come election night, we had a game plan, and we went out there and executed it. And And I was able to you know, get commitments from colleagues uh, across, uh, across the spectrum, both in the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. I'm very proud of it. I think it will serve the House very well to have that, that diverse support. But, but you were you're making it sound like you were drafted into service reluctantly. You I mean you could have said no, right? It's hard to say no when enough of your colleagues think you're the right person for the job. All right. Um, we're we're less than 24 hours away from the start of the session, as you uh, said. Uh, given the events of the last week in Washington, D.C., uh, Chairman, do you worry about the safety and security at our Capitol on opening day and going forward? Will there be any changes to the building's access because of what happened last week? I will say that uh, the Department of Public Safety and our National Guard are obviously on high alert, as they should yep. be. Uh, Texas is, I mean, we're one of the most you know, noticeable states in, in the country where this capital is is uh, just reopened. Uh, it just so happens that session starts tomorrow yep. uh, after following what happened in D.C. last week. So I can see I can see the concern. Uh, but I've also see the presence on the ground right now, and we're getting security briefings on a daily basis. I feel confident that we will not be caught off guard like what occurred in Washington, D.C. I don't see that happening at, at the Texas Capitol. Um, I read your reaction to the insurrection. Uh, I think you gave an interview to the Beaumont Enterprise over the last couple of days. You said this was not the act of patriots, that the Bill of Rights doesn't condone violence or trespassing. Do you believe there was any justification for people to be upset? Do you share the belief of the rioters that the election was stolen, Mr. Chairman? 
election, the public voted. Those election, the uh, the votes were tallied. The votes were verified. There were there were lawsuits in state court. There were lawsuits in federal court, and the process has worked its way through the system, and we are where we are. The president himself has said it's now time for a peaceful transfer of power. I, you know, I understand if you don't know what's going, for instance, I don't know what happened in Georgia. I don't live in Georgia. I've been paying attention to Texas, right? Yeah. So, you know, I, some folks from around the state may have, you know, come together in D.C. without all the information that, that they should have had. And, you know, what, what happened was unconscionable and should never happen again. I worked in D.C. Uh, briefly and never, never want to go back. But yeah. I, have deep, I have deep respect for the process they have up there, just like we have our process here. And what, what happened to the Texas, I mean, the U.S. Capitol was just un, unimaginable. It should never happen again. And I look back and I, I feel for the staffers and the, and the U.S. Capitol Police because that was really, in, in all my lifetime, I never thought I'd see something like that occur. Um, speaker, on the question, or speaker presumptive, on the question of capital access, um, a lot of talk about how the virus, the coronavirus, will affect the plans and protocols uh, in the building during the session. You know, the pandemic is raging, caseloads and hospitalizations are spiking across the state. We now have the more contagious strain of the virus present in Texas. How do you strike the right balance between public access and public health during a session like this? It's, it's an enormous question, You're, and I've entertained it a million times. And I can just say that you know, Texas always prided itself on how open it was to the public and how often we allow the public to come in unfettered and testify for hours after hours after hours. As being chair of state affairs, I sat through some very long hearings last session. Yep. And, I was proud, and I was proud to do so. I, I wanted to hear from the public. You know, there's 150 of us in the Texas House, and none of us want to pass legislation that impacts 29 to 30 million Texans without hearing from those Texans. But we're also dealing with the first global pandemic in 102 years. And we have to, you know, protect the public. We have to protect the staff, protect members, obviously, as we get through these 140 days. So it is a balancing act, and we're going to take it a day at a time, a week at a time, a month at a time. I think January will look a lot different than February. February is going to look a lot different than March and April as we go through and as the vaccine rolls out. And, and as it's rolling out, I think more public um, confidence will be instilled in both our economy and our government. And we may see more individuals show up here and, and testify on bills. We're trying to do the best we can. We have a constitutional duty to have the chamber open to the public. We have a constitutional duty to be in the chamber voting. So there's only so much we can change as far as how we operate. But we certainly want to hear from our, our, our constituents and our voters. It's just going to look a lot different. And I think most most Texans understand that. And, and they're, they're appreciative of what we're trying to do. I, I've read the various uh, documents that have been uh, circulated with the provisions for the session. And as I understand it, uh, Mr. Chairman, coronavirus testing is is not going to be required coming into the building. Is that right for the public or for the staff or for members coming into the Capitol? That is correct. So you have uh, you have the option to test at the, at, at, in a tent at the north side of the Capitol and then come into the building. But it's uh, an option. It's not a requirement. It is an option. But each individual member, as always, can yeah. operate their office as they see fit. So if an individual member says, I only want someone who's tested negative today in my right. office, that is up to that individual member. Right. But why wouldn't you require testing of people coming into the Capitol if you're going to convene the public, if you're going to open the building up to the public? 
why would you not want to, uh, to require testing of people who come into the building to be sure that somebody is not coming into the Capitol and spreading the virus to people who are there to exercise their rights as citizens oh. to see government in, in, in play? Sure. Well, we know that uh, social distancing works. We know wearing a mask works. And we know yeah. that washing your hands and using hand sanitizer works. So we're going to do all those, uh, and, and we're going to implement that throughout the Capitol. And that's that. Yeah. Will, I think will go a long way. You know, if we're not going to mandatory test at the schoolhouse, if we're not going to mandatory test at the courthouse, then we're not going to mandatory text, uh, test at the, at the Texas House. Okay. So, ma but masks, Mr. Chairman, are required. If you come into the public areas of the Capitol, masks are required. The preservation, the preservation board is, as we, as mandated, all ma you know, masks be right. worn in the common areas, just like you got to wear pants. Right. And that applies not just to the public, but also to staff and members, right? Correct. Now, on the House floor, yes, we, 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 would, we, we would request all members to adhere by dress code, just like we, you have to wear a suit and tie and you have to wear a mask, correct? Right. What are you prepared to do if a member flouts the mask rule? You and I both know that there are members of the legislature who have made their uh, uh, feelings about masks publicly known. Well, what mm -hmm. are you going to do if the member, if a member flouts the mask rule? We have, uh, so the chamber in of itself is everything past that front door as you walk in. So there are other rooms that are near or off the actual house floor that are considered yep. inside the chamber for voting purposes. There's also the gallery, which is considered inside the chamber. So the, the House has to pass rules, and I think we plan on passing those rules on Thursday, and they may incorporate options for those who, who don't want to wear a mask, who, who feel like it's not necessary, to give them the opportunity to um, you know, operate on the House floor or in the chamber that is not necessarily at their desk. It may be a room off the, the House floor. It may be in the gallery. There's also an option for those who don't feel safe who feel like that they're at risk given their, their health condition or their age, that even with masks and social distancing and, and everything else we may do, testing, that they still want to be off the House floor or in the gallery. So that will all be fleshed out on Thursday, and that's the yeah. members. It's the members' rules, and they will decide how they want to, what they want to pass and what they don't pass. And then as, right. speaker, as speaker, I will enforce those rules. But when the rules are passed, whatever they end up being, those rules are the rules, and they will be enforced, no exceptions. Yeah, what the members decide, you know, probably most likely Thursday, this coming Thursday, whatever the members decide, whether it's COVID-related or anything else, that's the, the, how they want to operate on the House floor or in, in committee, that will be enforced. Yes, sir. Okay. So how do you address the pandemic from a policy rather than process standpoint? Obviously, this is the elephant in the room. It's the big story of the last year. The public health emergency is a, is a huge th thing for Texas and you know for all of us in our lives. What should the legislature's response to it be? Where are the specific policy areas that you believe you should be addressing that come out of this 10 or 11 months of this public health emergency? Well, I think the most important thing is is we don't lose grasp of this opportunity to improve our response to a healthcare crisis. This may be not this may not be the last pandemic we deal with over the next year, decade, our lifetime. Evan, I mean, this has been 102 years since we've been here, but that I mean yeah. can't happen four years from now. So we need to look at best practice and figure out exactly how we can uh, handle the next healthcare crisis better. Right. And I think we have a pretty good blueprint for it. I'll give the governor all the credit when he suspended various regulations across the board, whether it was in the restaurant industry, the oil and gas industry, the healthcare industry, you name it. 
why not just keep those suspensions indefinitely? The world did not change. The sky did not fall. So that's one roadmap. Let's look at what helped our economy. Let's look at the deregulation that occurred and just and keep that, right? Well, but and that's, Mr. Mr. Chairman, that's the economy. I'm talking about health specifically, policies around public health. What do you think we should be focusing on on public health? Well, I think if you look at, well, the pandemic is just, I think it kind of put a highlighter on what was already an issue. And that is areas around like rural Texas, where I am. I represent right. one of the largest counties, in the, the largest county in the state of Texas without a full scale hospital. Yeah. And so it's, it's the haves and the have nots. And I think this I think the pandemic has kind of shone a light on that. Right. And even with the vaccine rollout, you look at areas that have not gotten the vaccine. It's because they just don't have the infrastructure and it's a healthcare infrastructure. And so we've got a long way to go to improve that. There's no doubt about it. And this is a large state with a very diverse population mm -hmm. with, a, with a huge with a huge border, 1200 miles of border. Um, and so it's always been a difficult state to have you know, the most robust healthcare policy, given given who we are and how we operate in our economy. No, I, I tell you right now, I mean, if, uh, if I could snap my fingers and put a hospital in Orange County, I would have done it yesterday. I mean, right. it, 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 is, it is a problem. Rural healthcare is an issue, no doubt about it. But, you know, you look at things like telemedicine and telehealth and how it did help those areas of the state that did not have those options. That's, some, that, that, right. that's a silver lining. We, we can build on telemed telemedicine and telehealth to improve right. healthcare options for rural Texas. Mr. Chairman, you know that Texas before the pandemic had more people without health insurance than any other state. And that since health insurance is tied in so many cases to employment, a lot of people lost their jobs in the last year. Our numbers have spiked up even higher than they were before. Should you all have a serious conversation about Medicaid expansion during this session as some members wanna do, or in your mind, is that discussion off the table? Uh, members from Republicans and Democrats have come to me to talk about improvement upon Medicaid. Yeah. Some want expansion. I don't think expansion's on the table. I don't think the votes are there for expansion. I think we can have a robust discussion about the improvements behind Medicaid, a Texas solution to Medicaid. Right. One that is revenue neutral, one that does not tie us to billions of dollars in future expenditures. We, right. will, all, we will always have an issue with the uninsured because of the size of this state and the thousands of people who are moving here every single day and week. And they're not, they're not busting down the doors of Vermont, which has probably the best insured rate. They're coming to Texas. And so it's always going to be a challenging population. And, you know, I, again, I've talked to members in the House across the spectrum who want to talk about health care. And now may be a good time to do it, given, given the pandemic and how we frame things up. But you've seen the budget. You see what it looks like. The, right. number one, the number one expenditures is, is Article Three, which is uh, public education, higher education. Right. The, number, the number two is health care. And right. that's 75 percent of the budget. Right. There. Which is why some people, Mr. Chairman, believe that taking money that was our tax dollars that went to Washington, having them come back in the form of Medicaid expansion might provide some uh, relief on the public health side and also on the budget side. Right. Provide us with an, inf an infusion of money. You're saying it's off the table because you don't believe the votes are there. Are you going to shut down any discussion of that issue during this session? Or are you just predicting that the votes would not be there to actually pass it in the House? I, I shut down no discussion on any bill. Yeah. Again, I'm the arbitrator of the House. Yeah. And any, anyone can bring anything. They bring any amendment. We've, we've had this amendment to expand Medicaid on the House floor for right. 
every session I've been in, in the legislature and the votes have never been there. So let's talk about what can happen. Let's talk about a revenue neutral solution. Let's talk about a Texas solution. Let's talk about the federal government giving us our money back without a long term billion multi-billion dollar commitment. And then right. I think there, there are Republicans and Democrats alike who, who could band together and say, yeah, we just want our federal tax dollars back in the state of Texas, back in our healthcare system. Um, you were talking about the governor's decision to relax regulations during the pandemic and the impact that that had on the economy. W what should the legislature's focus be in terms of speeding a recovery economically? Because obviously we're in an unusual situation right now, Mr. Chairman, our unemployment rate in Texas is higher than the national unemployment rate. There were many, many months for years where we were better than the rest of the country in terms of our unemployment rate and our economy. What are you prepared to do to fix this, to speed the recovery? Well, I don't know if, if the, any governmental entity can fix the economy. I think the economy takes care of itself if government gets out of the way and allows the, the entrepreneurs and the business owners to get back to work. And I think one thing is if we do this, Relax, not relax, but look at these regulations that were not necessary. That's a, that's a good first start, right? The last thing we could, should ever do is raise taxes and be punitive, especially to our small businesses who were shut down. It wasn't it wasn't to their, you know, um, they didn't want to be shut down. They wanted to be open. They wanted to, to operate respectfully with social distancing. And they have there are now and they're doing well. The ones that are open, you know, the PPP and the Cures Act, it had its limits. Eventually, we got to get back to business, and we are back to business. And I think the economy here in Texas is coming back stronger than, than many realize. And I think you saw that today. We were supposed to have a four point six billion dollar deficit for this biennium, and it's less than a billion now. Right. And that's that's just over the last several months. So the economy in Texas is coming back. It's going to take a little bit longer. Uh, of course, we like to say that we've we're more diversified than we ever have been, with, but we still are tied quite a bit to the oil and gas industry. And as that recovers. Yeah, and it is slowly coming back. Then you'll see, I think, the economic recovery that we all want, and I think we will grow our way out of this this uh, economic funk that we're in right now. Uh, I, th I think I heard you answer this, but I want to be clear: the government has now said, uh, the governor, pardon me, has now said no more shutdowns of, of business. You agree with that? You agree, no more shutdowns, despite the coronavirus raging. No more shutdowns of business. No more shutdowns of business. And I think it was Mayor Cuomo who who tweeted about 45 minutes ago that he said no more government shutdowns. Right. right. And regardless of when the vaccine is rolled out to you know respectable level that we can all, it is time to reopen the economy. And that that's coming yeah. from uh, Andrew Cuomo in New York. So I think all the governors realize it is time to get back to business. Right. Do you think it was a mistake, uh, uh, Chairman Phelan, for the governor to issue orders without consulting the legislature or bringing you all back into session during the pandemic? You know this has been a topic of conversation. When I ask you, should there be legislation this session to prevent that from happening in the future? Well, you're talking to a House member who had four natural, pardon me, four state declared disasters in 11 months in my district. Yeah. Uh, two natural disasters, a plant explosion, and COVID-19. So I've seen the, the Chapter 4 and 8 powers do extraordinary things in getting my people, my voters, my constituents back into school, uh, back to work, yeah. the roads cleaned up, the power lines strung back up, and everyone back to, uh, you know, life as normal as possible. You know, the governor did all he could do, given the circumstances of a pandemic, a 102 year pandemic thrown in his lap. When you have to make decisions, split second decisions on how to operate under a pandemic, it's very, very difficult. It's a it's a lose lose situation. I thought he did as best as he could. 
we can talk about how you want to handle pandemics going forward. I think that's, you know, something that many members in the house want to talk about. But you also understand how chapter 418s do benefit a community yeah. when, when they're when they're in dire straits. And they really it really does benefit. I've seen it firsthand. And the governor wrote the book on how to respond to hurricanes called the, it's actually a book called The Eye of the Storm, 158 page book that John Sharp wrote with him about how to respond to hurricanes. So I, I've seen I've seen the extraordinary um, benefits of Chapter 418. And I hope other members can appreciate that. Uh, let me stay with the tension between the state and local officials for a second. Speaker Bonin said in the Michael Quinn Sullivan tape now infamously, my goal is for this to be the worst session in the history of the legislature for cities and counties. Is that your goal this session, Chairman? My goal is to empower the members to be as best as they can be and bring whatever legislation to the House floor that, that is important to their districts. I want them to vote their districts. I want them to do what they're sent to Austin to do, which is be a member of a constitutional representative democracy. And I am not uh, focused on cities and counties. I'm not focused on anything else other than operation. Uh, of are, are you are you on the side of cities and counties, Chairman Phelan? I take no sides on, on, on either of them. I, I, I have a great relationship with my mayors. I have a great relationship right. with my county judges. You can call and ask them. I talk to them on a daily basis. There's no, there yeah. is no animosity there. Will a ban on taxpayer-funded lobbying by local governments, as some have proposed, have your support this session? Well, again, like any other piece of legislation outside of the budget, redistricting and economic recovery, it's up to those House members to bring that to the House floor, to get the votes through the committee process, through calendars and onto the House floor. Yeah. As you know, last session, I was a joint author of it. I was on the back back mic defending that bill. I think it has merits. Um, you know, As a House member, I thought it had tremendous merits as far as allowing um, you know, the citizens understand where their money is going and where it should or should not be lobbied. But it's going to be up to a House member to file that bill and get his or, or her colleagues to support it through the process, just like any other bill that's going to come through the process next session. Um, how certain are you? You said earlier that nothing was off the table in terms of cuts. Let me actually invert that question and ask you how certain you are that you will be able to find the money to fund the school finance reforms passed in 2019, the teacher pay increase, the funding of pre-K, the increase in the per student allotment. Should the people who benefited from that work last time be worried that that will not be extended another two years? Can you make a commitment about that? I will make a commitment that we do everything we can to make certain we fulfill our responsibilities. But yeah. again, it is a huge state. It is a large budget. I, we just got the numbers two hours and 29 minutes ago. Right. So it's going to have to go through the process and we're going to have to have the, again, hearings, open hearings to the public and go through whatever. The, the, it was a monumental bill last session. We solved a lot of problems with the formulas and the property tax reform. But again, it's, it's, not, it's not an easy task to dig yourself out of the hole that we, we will find ourselves in next session. But you know, we, want to, we want to have a full commitment to our, our, our students and to our, our teachers. You know, I've got four boys and I had to distance learn my children, uh, my wife and I. And I went from being a teacher to the uh, janitor and the lunch lady in about a week's time. Yeah, because I, I saw how difficult it is. And I've a, I've always had tremendous respect for teachers. But now I have a newfound respect for teachers. And I think every member of the legislature who has children who went through what I went through feels the same way. Uh, Mr. Chairman, we just have a little time left, so I want to pivot to politics if I can. Um, 
you know, there's a rift between Democrats and Republicans always, but there's not always a rift between Republicans and Republicans. And there appears to be a rift between some in your party. You have the Republican Party chairman, Alan West, for instance, rallying outside the governor's mansion and attacking you personally as a, quote, political traitor for courting support from Democrats. What is your response to the chairman of your party when he calls you a traitor? Well, I'm not going to respond to him per se. I'll just respond. Why, to why not, Mr. Chairman? Why not? He called you a traitor. Well, I, you know, if you want to know a lot about yourself, go run for Speaker of the Texas House, and you have a lot of people call you a lot of things, and you don't really respond to every single one of them because right. uh, you, you've got a task at hand, and the task at hand is leading the Texas House forward, leaving the state of Texas forward in a budget deficit, redistricting, and a global pandemic, right? So you focus on what you actually can, um, you know, you can impact. And so what I like to tell individuals is that I've been around the Texas House for a long time. Yep. I started here in 1994 as a young staffer. Uh, I worked in the Texas Senate. I worked in the U.S. Congress, and I went back home and got into real estate and started having babies and never thought I'd come back here. But I do know a lot about this building and about this institution. And we've always had a model, and the model that's worked pretty darn well. And it's not always about Republican versus Democrat. And it's not always about you know left right. versus right. This is, this is a process that works, and it's worked pretty darn well. And when Rep Democrats were in power, Republicans were given chairs of, uh, respective of their membership in the body. And the same will ha has happened over the last three Republican speakers, and it will happen with myself as a, as a Republican speaker. So it will happen. You're, you're, you're confirming that. You know that there are four members of the Republican caucus, Jeff Kasin and Brian Slayton, who are new members, Tony Tinderholt and Kyle Biederman have been around for a while, who've asked you point blank to not have Democratic chairs. No. You are saying you will have Democratic chairs for sure this session. We will have Democratic chairs this session. We've had a process here enough for 172 years. It's worked pretty well. A thousand people move here every day for a reason, and I don't see any reason to change it. Yeah, okay, last question, Mr. Chairman. What about the Biden administration? The last time we had a Democratic president, all eight years of his two terms, Texas behaved effectively like the People's Republic of anti-Obama. Everything he was for, we were against. Everything we were for, he was against. I'm old enough to remember when Greg Abbott used to brag about suing the federal government every day. Are we in for a return to those days, or do you think you and the legislature can find common ground to work with the federal government? I, I can't speak for anyone other than myself. And I've got an open door policy. I will work with anyone on any issue if it's good for Texas, and especially if it's good for Southeast Texas. <laughs> right. And, and how's it 21? You know, I, I got to where I've, I am right now about, about being willing to work with, with anybody. It, the great thing, Evan, about being from a rural area, smaller area in Southeast Texas like I am, and you're not, you, you have, you've got to work with everybody. And I, I learned from day one that. Uh, my, my votes that I have to have for any particular bill, they can come from anywhere. I just got to go get my votes. And that's what I think members need to understand is we all have to work with one another. I hope we don't have an adversarial relationship with Washington, D.C. You know, D.C. is broken. We've, we've seen that. It is, it is not work like like the legislature does. I and mean, Evan, I think you covered this this body and you covered this building for a reason because it's it's things actually occur here. Things actually happen for the betterment of all Texans. And I just want to see that continue to happen. I, I, whether others want to work with D.C. or not, I don't know. But I think here in the Texas House, we're all willing to do whatever works for the people of Texas. All right. Uh, I can't believe we're out of time. But with that, Mr. Chairman, we are, in fact, out of time. I want to thank you very much for joining us. You've been listening to Point of Order. 
a proud member of the Texas Tribune's family of podcasts. Thanks to our guest, Speaker Presumptive Dade Phelan, and thanks to the sponsors of this episode. Be sure to check out the Tribune's deep coverage of the 87th legislative session at texastribune.org. And if you like what you see there or hear here, tell your friends about us. Until next time, I'm Evan Smith.